Happening now, we'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room for October the 18th, 2017. Uh, this is actually West Fryer. My daughter was very upset that I was going to get this guy. My, my golden retriever is quite excited. We're not going to have a puppet show tonight. We're actually going to talk about technology news, as we always do. And I'm joining from Oklahoma City, where it is a lovely, cool evening, and we are in the midst of hopefully transitioning finally into fall. Joining, as always, by Jason Neifer, who is sure to bring much more levity and intelligence to the conversation than I perhaps will be able to tonight. Hello, Jason. Only of reflecting your amazingness, Wes. Good evening. Um, I am joining tonight from lovely Missoula, Montana. We're starting to get some uh, uh, crisp evenings as well, although um, it, it's funny because the, the thing about Montana is that even when fall comes and then winter comes, you could get a rogue 80-degree de day. So um, it was just windy and in the 60s today, but I expect there to be probably a warmer day next week. And um, that is the loveliness of Montana weather. So uh, before the show, Wes and I were commenting that we seem to have a, a growing list of links each week. And in fact, we've talked about actually maybe in relatively near future doing a single topic show on the notion of Chromebooks, which means this link, this link uh, uh, horde is going to get even larger. But we'll see what we can get through tonight. Um, and by the way, this is the EdTech Situation Room, a weekly podcast where you can hear uh, uh, educational news with, uh, I'm sorry, tech news with an educational lens. And if you want to see all of our magic links, the ones we get to or not, you can go to our website, www.edtechsr.com. And Dr. Fryer, where should we start this week? All right. Well, I think I'm going to start with uh, security. And we've talked quite a few times on the show about the need for security, how two-step authentication or verification is critical. We should turn that on on all of our devices. And this week, Google has actually announced a advanced protection, which locks down accounts like never before. So this is a Wired article from yesterday on October 17th. Um, I've also dropped links into the Google Safety Center, which has really practical and good suggestions for how we can keep ourselves uh, safe and secure, an excellent resource to share with teachers as well as parents and students, and then the actual link to the Google Advanced Protection Program. And this was a response, apparently, to you know well-publicized hacks that John Podesta, the chairman of the Democratic National Committee had, uh, Colin Powell, others, uh, phishing attacks where folks are able to convince you that, yes, you need to click on this link and put in your account credentials. Um, we've you know talked about ransomware and all other kinds of attacks. We've also briefly mentioned uh, OAuth, which is an authentication scheme that uses your Google credentials. I'm actually interested to know how this would affect on. And I, I suspect because this breaks native Apple apps, for instance, like Apple Mail and Apple Calendar, you have to use the native Google applications and you have to sign in with Chrome. Uh, it's really, you know, focus on security. Um, this isn't going to be for everybody. This is really who are, who are targeted or potentially going to be targeted by hackers. Um, we've talked before about how security you know, needs layers and uh you know, any, anybody who, you know, is in a house or a building, you know, te technically is at risk at some point. It just depends on how, how many resources and how much time, you know, somebody wants to invest in terms of, of uh, penetrating the layers of security that you have. But I think this is a good sign. Um, I did actually visit with one of our teachers this week. Uh, we have a, a teacher actually who does not have a cell phone. They, they pretty much kind of live off the grid. And so using a USB key, uh, would be an option for this person or for other people that don't want to carry their smartphone with them. Um, but if I, I don't think many of us are going to want to sign up for advanced protection because it means you can't use SMS messages, you can't use the Google Authenticator app. And actually, if you go through the sign up, which I just looked at briefly tonight, um, you have to purchase two pieces of hardware. You have to have a physical USB security key, and then you also need a Bluetooth security key, which the link right off of Google's website now is sold out on Amazon. And that allows you with your smartphone or your tablet to go ahead and sign up. So what do you think, Jason? Is advanced security needed today? And uh, who do you think there's any educational you know, users out there, superintendents or, or board trustees or any, anybody? 
is this something that's beyond us in education? What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, I think part of it has to do with the fact that there are, you know, obviously privacy laws that impact schools. The one I'm thinking, of course, is a FERPA, uh, which deals with with uh, student data, student information. But I, the part of this that, that I have a problem wrapping my brain around is that, I mean, obviously hacking is going to happen, right? That's not an excuse by any stretch of the imagination. It's just the reality of the world we live in. But how valuable is student data in the context of extraordinary security measures? I don't think I would necessarily go for something like this myself, although looking, clicking through the links that you shared, Wes, uh, you can get into this hardware-wise for about 50 bucks. That's not a high price to pay to put such extraordinary security on the system. But I think if you just set up two-factor authentication and do your best to do that, even if you end up becoming the victim of one of these hacking attacks, it's probably not a huge deal. But I also don't generally trade in HIPAA information, health-related information. Um, and, you know, the educational records I trade in, I think, are best secured by mainstream security measures like two-factor authentication. But I do think that there are professionals we work with in context of education that may want to consider something more extraordinary than, than, than the, the, the standards of two-factor authentication. But, I mean, I think it's a really interesting what-if scenario in regards to schools. Um, if private information does leak, and there have been instances in the last month or so where districts have actually had student data stolen and utilized uh, in, in uh, basically uh, uh, attacks, right? There was a situation in northwestern Montana, uh, another situation a few weeks ago in Nebraska that was very similar, where there was uh, student data stolen from student information systems or hacked in student information systems and then utilized to send threats to schools, students, and parents. And, you know, in an era where we are very paranoid about data security, I do think policymakers might ask questions like, are you doing absolutely everything possible to lock down student data? And I'm not sure if we have an answer yet to what the balance is between those extraordinarily critical needs. At the same time, I want to be able to get into my, my email account each morning without jumping through three or four additional hoops. Um, I, so I don't know. I, I'm not sure if, if there is a, a balance, an obvious balance there yet. I'm certain that the courts will get involved at some point, specifically as it relates to schools. But it's, it's you know, we, we say this a lot here on the podcast, but it is a whole new world. And I'm not sure if our old rules really matter here. At the same time, I'm not sure if new rules are abundantly clear. So we seem to be in an ambiguous point. Um, and, and I think it, it begs the question then, you know, what, what, what are we doing broadly? So, Wes, for example, administratively, uh, you, what steps have you taken at your school to lock down student data? Well, we are implementing uh, required two-factor authentication with Google for everyone. Yep. In fact, ye yesterday I had a chance to visit with all of our high school faculty and do a demonstration and, and help help faculty do that. And so by the end of this calendar year, everyone is going to be required to do that. Um, we are moving towards single sign-on. We don't yet have, and this is the interesting thing about security, right? Like the more you reveal, the more you tell others, you know, your vulnerabilities. Yeah. Um, we don't have single sign-on for everything, but we are we are on that road. And this is a road we've been on for a long time. You know, I remember uh, I worked at Texas Tech University in Lubbock from probably uh, 1999, 2000 to 2006. And, you know, we were talking at that time with the university, they were, they were really working towards a single sign-on. They had so many different authentication schemes and so many different departments. You know, one of the, when someone has access to your system is, is who they are and being able to have some control over that. So that's the main thing that, that we're implementing. Um, it is interesting to think about students and I don't see us doing that as far as, as implementing, you know, student two-factor. Um, but I have been told by other, uh, school CIOs that, you know, from a liability standpoint, by the way, we're not lawyers on this show. We're not giving legal advice. Um, but we've been told by others who aren't lawyers either that, you know, they their school lawyers have said two-factor, you know, in, in court cases has been really important in terms of the, the, the access to cloud-based data. Um, we've also asked our users not to use 
uh, email clients on their laptop computers. Uh, so that, that means they're not going to be downloading attachments, downloading student information, you know, automatically. It's going to be in the cloud and they might selectively download those things, but trying to, you know, keep things in the cloud and, and keep things that way. I'm glad you mentioned that Montana, um, situation because we you mentioned that a few weeks ago on the show maybe it's even a month ago and i don't know that we talked about it i i dropped the link in our chat room and by the way uh welcome to uh jamie camp i think coming to us from texas and peggy george from arizona we're in our chat room um this is an article from uh cso which is an idg publication and the title is dark overlord hack schools across u.s text threats to kids against kids to parents. And this was not only schools in Montana, but it was also in Iowa, Texas, uh, and Alabama. And what was crazy about this was they gained access to the student information system and they didn't simply, you know, send a ransomware Bitcoin request to the administration or to, you know, board members or whatever. They directly parents through text messaging and um, maybe email, this, this says text. And really, you know, struck some chords of fear within schools when, when you start to talk about, you know, school violence and, and things like that. And so uh, this and it's scary stuff. So, um, yeah, this eh, we, we, we all need to be proactive, you know, when it comes to security. And so I'm glad to see Google doing this. I think I agree with you that, that just oh, simply setting up two factor passwords on different accounts is. You know, the most important thing that, that generally users could be doing. But I'm glad to see a continuum of additional steps to say, hey, if you want to go further, kind of like with your credit with Equifax, you want to lock down your credit. You know, if you want to go to this advanced security level, um, you know, it's it's available. And we're certainly not looking to companies like Yahoo to do this. Right. We had the article a couple of weeks ago where. You know, several years ago now, it's been admitted every single Yahoo account, millions and millions of accounts were actually, you know, compromised and hacked. So I think the other implication from a school standpoint is looking at the security of our devices and the degree to which we can manage and wipe them from the cloud. On kind of a negative note, we've upgraded to High Sierra on a few of our systems, and we use the Mac OS server to re-image Mac laptops. One of the things that Apple rep had told us a few weeks ago was that Apple was going to move away from that and was going to be doing really cloud-based, you know, wipes and formats and and using mobile device management. And I've spoken with some other technology directors who've who've talked about that as far as their refreshes, that they really don't touch machines. It's all handled through, in that case, Jamf and, and their mobile device manager. Really puts a lot of strain potentially on your network, you know, needs to look at, at caching servers and stuff like that. But that's really the Google model, right? The Google model is your data is in the cloud. You, you know, connect your device and then pull the pull the content to you when you need it. And so it's pretty interesting to see Apple you know, moving in that direction as well as Microsoft. And I think one of the biggest things pushing companies in this direction, it, it, it are and is and are the security aspects and the security threats. Right. Absolutely. So, and, you know, and I, and looking at this, I don't think the, the extra steps are that, are that onerous. Like I could see carrying a blue, a Bluetooth USB device and it, as well as the, uh, our Bluetooth device and the USB device to be able to log into email. But you know, it, it's definitely a, um, it's definitely an interesting phenomenon, um, and we'll just need to keep an eye on it. And one thing I did want to mention about the the hacking of schools article, the, the most stunning thing about that event to me was that you know someone logs in and downloads a bunch of student data. It's definitely a FERPA violation. It definitely, um, you know, violates the privacy of students. Could could uh, 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 reveal some extremely sensitive information. But what the hackers did there was they weaponized that information, not just with a handful of, 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 of individuals, but with the mass of individuals, whether there was embarrassing information in a particular student's account or not. And when we get to the point where uh, even you know, relatively bland student data is weaponizable, it, it's a bad deal and something we, we certainly need to be acknowledging of. And in an era where, you know, you're carrying student data with around you on a phone or a tablet or a laptop, whether it's school owned or not, we, we, we need to be thinking about standards to make that not a reality. I think we're going to have to have some categories of the show for 
And now in good technology news, because, you know, we don't want to just be dystopian and, you know, yeah. get everybody down. So, and it, and I, yeah, I, and I think this is important as a, as a technology director for me to remember, you know, I, I am, I'm not trying to play the fear card just to scare people. I really, <clears throat> I was visiting with, uh, with someone who was, was really down on the two step and just, they don't, they aren't wanting it. They think we, it's too burdensome and, you know, so I talked about the Equifax hack with teachers and just talked about the normalization of, of the security threat environment. Um, just, I, I, it's not something we want to overplay like chicken little. Um, and, but, and, and we want to balance it with good, with good as well, right? Cause there are, there is a lot of news out there besides, you know, and today in the next, you know, day in hacking. Yep. But we could, you know, we, we, we could do a show all about that, but we want to assure people. We'll talk about more than just that. So, Jason, do you have a another article you'd like to take us to besides? And obviously, we can return to security as well. Sure, yeah. Where where else can we go tonight? Because yeah, this, there's another this two dozen articles. This is a long list. So, yeah, let, let's talk about some some uh, kind of more mainstream technology news. Uh, Windows 10 Fall Creators Update uh, is available as of I believe it was yesterday was when Microsoft was allowing you to to download that. A particular piece of software, and um, as a reminder to our viewers that are maybe not steeped in the modern Microsoft uh, uh, ecosystem, Windows 10 is supposedly the last version of Windows, and Windows 10 will release updates every six months uh, to the operating system. Now, that's come with some interesting implications, some of which we've talked about in the past in regards to uh, the lack of support for older hardware platforms. For example, earlier uh, devices that have the so-called Atom chips from Intel are no longer supported by modern versions of Windows 10 because they're not fast enough to support the software. But for those of you that have Windows 10 machines that are outside of a managed computer network, you'll get a notification right now, right now is a strong word, uh, the, the, over the next couple of weeks to download the newest version of Windows 10. And if you want to jump the line, if you will, there are articles that, that allow you to do that. Uh, we were posting a Verge article tonight um, about the uh, fall creators update, but there's also a great article from the a separate article from the Verge that talks about um, the newest features um, in Windows 10 fall creators update, and I want to give a couple of um, uh, uh, notes there. The first one is that OneNote, which is the cloud storage system that comes with Windows and Office. 365 is now uh, an on-demand system, if you wish, which is like the new Google Sync system. Basically, it allows you to download OneDrive and only download the files you're either immediately using or downloading whole directories or individual files to store on your local computer if you expect to be out of internet access. We talked about this a few weeks ago. It's also available now as file sync in the Google App system. Um, a great uh, a solution, especially if you're buying one of the modern laptops that, that seems to have less storage on them than their um, a few generation of back cousins. Um, that is a, certainly an interesting um, uh, a feature and something I would plan to use um, using utilizing uh, the new version of Windows 10. Um, in addition, there is a new People's app. Oh, go ahead, Wes. Have, I'm, I'm curious, where are you with OneNote? Because that's something we've had some of our administrators really love, and we've got a few actually moving towards Mac, but very interested in how Microsoft appears to be making their products, you know, run better on Mac. So where are you on the OneNote use? Um, I like OneNote. Are you, are you? Um, it's, a, it's a very functional system. I do like what Microsoft has done in the Microsoft Education product. The Microsoft Classroom heavily uses a, a, a OneNote system along with their new um, collaboration suite called Microsoft Teams. It's pretty great. Um, but to be honest, um, I think OneNote is better than Evernote. But I don't really use either because I'm steeping the Google Drive architecture. And I love the notebook concept. I think it's easy to organize. It's very well, very well done piece of software. It works great across platform. It's just not something that's worked it worked into my my workflow at this time. Right. So what else is there for the for the updates in this creator's release? Um, there is an update to Microsoft Edge, which is the replacement browser for Internet Explorer. It's a wonderful, a fast, crisp web browser. I think it's it's Microsoft's best browser to this to this date. Um, there are enhancements to pen and touch uh, interfaces, particularly writing um, on a Windows tablet or Windows touchscreen, which is uh, I think pretty solid. And there's also some. 
um, better uh, uh, monitoring for nerds of CPU usage and graphics processing power usage. So you can bring more statistics up to find out what's going on behind the scenes, especially on faster computers, um, which may feel uh, slow to you. You can start tracking what is utilizing um, some of the graphics power and some of the CPU power. And to the point of security, that is a, a key tool, right? As a troubleshooter yes. for IT, whenever you have on a Mac a spinning, you know, beach ball or, you know, the, the, the system is not running, which, by the way, it's, it's amazing how people kind of adapt to a new normal. And sometimes users don't realize, oh, my gosh, this is taking forever, you know, for this to happen. Going to what is sometimes called the process manager uh, I think that might be what Windows calls it. Um, it's the activity monitor, I think, on the Mac. And then you can click at the top to filter by CPU usage. And so sometimes you'll see something weird. I mean, there's all kinds of things. And sometimes it is system uh, resources that are legit. But it gives you an idea what is consuming resources. And if you see something... Um, you know, consuming a lot, you certainly can Google it, find out what it is, and that is off, oftentimes, if it's a suspicious thing, a reason to wipe the system and, and clear the, the data off. So that's, that's another thing I would just say. Best practice today is install Google Drive and Sync, which is the, the new enterprise for G Suite user uh, application that will synchronize selectively, you know, what, what you've got in the cloud to your machine. It's really, it's almost like the Chromebookization of, of yeah. computing devices. Because if you put all of your stuff into your Google Drive folder, and then when, when something happens, you know, you get, you get something, then zap, your machine can be blown away and, and it can be reinstalled. So I'm, I'm really curious on the Microsoft side to see how, what they do with the management, you know, and if they are able to innovate, you know, to catch up to Google or, you know, if they exceed them, uh, but that to me that's the biggest benchmark is the the Google Admin Console and, and Microsoft is trying to chase that with their Windows S or whatever, but right. still haven't played with that yet. Yep. So I'm excited. Um, I I do uh, own um, various Windows uh, uh, platforms. I have a desktop at work. I have a, a, a Surface Book that 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 I utilize occasionally. Um, which is a great platform, and then also some older Lenovo laptops. So I'll definitely get it installed and, and start putting it through its paces. I was on a beta version of it um, uh, on, on a, an older laptop, and I played with it a bit, and it seemed nice. But I am really excited to have um, um, a, um, a really, um, you know, I guess fresh OS system. I mean, I'm glad that Microsoft has adopted both the Chrome OS and the Mac OS thought that they are releasing regular updates on their operating system, and it is evolving. I think Windows 10 of, 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 of uh, October 2017 is light years ahead of Windows 10 of summer 2015 when it's released. So great news in the Windows architecture system. See, there we go. We do talk about good news here. And on the completely unrelated, we've been having some, some ch chats about the uh, rather amateurish-looking tinfoil hat. And so Peggy George has helpfully provided a video how to make a tinfoil hat in less than two minutes. Perhaps we should offer a shout-out to any of our listeners who want to assist us with tin hat construction. If you would like to send Wes your links, that would be great. Um, I think I'd like to go to something else that's kind of just cool and awesome that has to do with our solar system. And <clears throat> one of the things I've, I think, mentioned on the show before, love to do as a STEM teacher and just a teacher of whatever you're going to talk about. I love curiosity links, you know, articles and news and things that just really pique your curiosity. And these can be writing prompts that students can use. Uh, they can be conversation, you know, obviously conversation starters. But um, NASA has a press release <clears throat> out, uh, which is from NASA JPL on October 4th, the super earth that came home for dinner. And I found out about this because of uh, a futurism article on October 13th. Uh, NASA press release says our solar system has a ninth planet. I talked to my son, who's a sophomore in college last year or this last night, and he said, "Oh yeah, Dad, that, they knew about that, you know, a year ago." So I'm not. I'm thinking maybe there's there's more scientific consensus building around it, but <clears throat> evidently, as we have been discovering more exoplanets out beyond, you know, our solar system um, and and even the Milky Way galaxy, we are 
seeing, um, and well, I guess maybe, I don't know, maybe all the exoplanets are in our galaxy. I don't know if they are. There are other solar systems where we have observed Earth-like uh, planets, but they're about 20 times our, our mass, much, much more massive. And so in order to account for all of what's happening um, in terms of the motion of, of, our, of our solar system, uh, a growing number of scientists are saying there is a dark planet out there that is way, way beyond, multiple times beyond the orbit of Neptune. Um, and we haven't seen it yet, but we have sensed it, and the models account for it. And so they're calling this a super Earth. Um, this isn't something that would be on a collision course with Earth. Um, but, you know, we had all kinds of hoopla when they decided Pluto was not a planet. And it's kind of cool. You know, Pluto, if you looked at the, at the orbit, um, every, all the, the first eight planets or what are now considered to be our eight planets in our solar system line up on a single plane. And Pluto is, was, you know, is, it's still out there, right? We just are not calling it a planet, um, is off kilter. It's, it's not on the same, uh, elliptical plane. And so this dark planet, uh, and, and because of the math and how it all works, they think is, you know, actually going, I think, the opposite direction. And it's it's also um, angled. Uh, so also in NASA news from Futurism, October 13th, NASA's new ion thruster breaks records could take humans to Mars. And so, um, you know, I think this kind of thing is exciting. I've always just, you know, loved space and, you know, think that we're oftentimes very inspired to, you know, dream dreams when not only we watch science fiction, but when we see, you know, things happening for real with uh, the space program and what we see happening with, with commercial space and things like that. So Jason, are, what, what are you all doing at the Montana digital, the uh, online digital Academy to encourage the next generation of, uh, of STEM students? I bet you guys probably have a a collection of STEM classes. We do, um, and we're always kind of trying to figure out where to aim more, uh, more to student bodies across the state of Montana. Our program is really all about access, particularly at the most rule of rule schools. Uh, one of the things that we talk a lot about in context of our program is that there's rural schools, and then there are states like Montana, where there are schools that have a, a graduating class of four kids that you know are 100 miles away from the, the nearest uh, medium-sized town and 500 miles away from, uh, uh, you know, a large supermarket. That Those, those, those places do exist um, in, in, in the, the American West. But one of the things we do like to do is provide access to unique and interesting electives in, in the science and mathematics fields in addition to advanced placement courses. Something we're very interested in is, is access for advanced placement students. So we've been working really hard to try to... Um, um, uh, uh, to try to, to give more access to those pieces. But it's tools like this, and I'm really glad to see Google go in this direction. Um, it's, it's tools like this that I think really give, um, you know, a, a way to enlighten and, and, and delight in this particular content in the same way that I was kind of a space geek as a little kid too, but for me it was a, a, a manual telescope and a large star book that, that encouraged me. There's just so much more you can have access to now um, that uh, is is really quite extraordinary, and you know, at the risk of sounding like you know old man Knifer, these kids just don't know how good they got it. Um, like I would have killed to have access to some of these these amazing tools uh, uh, thirty years ago. Absolutely, and and actually, I hadn't uh, in that same article. And if you're following along on our show notes, uh, one of the things I've started to do in the shows as we go along is kind of elevate—not kind of—I am uh, moving articles up as we talk about them. That way, they're in order. Uh, when we go ahead and create the show notes, um, uh, Jason talking about Google going this way is a shout out to uh, an article that was in that same section, Space Out with Planets and Google Maps from Google on October the 16th, 2017. And so um, I actually wrote a blog post about this on Speed of Creativity last night, <clears throat> but they have just bringing the power of Google Earth to the Chrome browser. And so where in the past to really have a, an amazing Google Earth experience, you had to be on a Windows or, or a Mac computer running the client version of Google Earth. Um, that version is now free. It's called Google Earth Pro. But you can do amazing things in the uh, Earth for Chrome version and and they have taken hundreds and, and probably I guess you know thousands is safe to say photographs from Cassini which was this um, uh, 
mission that went to Saturn and, and for 20 years uh, after it got there um, has been photographing the planet and the moons and, you know, showing, you know, ice geysers or gaseous geysers, you know, coming out of different different moons and just amazing stuff. And it's made it accessible and browsable, you know, via the, the same Google Earth uh, environment. So that is definitely amazing. And since it's in the same section, I'll mention two other Google mashup things, which are not quite as exciting because they're a little bit voting. But um, in the process of uh, looking at different things relating to uh, nukes in North Korea and things like that, I came across these two resources. They're both created by Alex Wellerstein, who on his Twitter profile, which is just Wellerstein, he says, historian of science, secrecy, and nuclear weapons, programmer and web developer of NukeMap, author of Restricted Data Blog, Harvard PhD, and professor at Follow Stevens, which is um, the Stevens Institute of Technology in Hoboken, New Jersey. So he's created um, two tools, which at a minimum, if you're going to, if you're talking with students, and of course, they're of a older age and you know this isn't something we're going to want to talk with with our younger you know youngest kids about but if we're talking about you know the possibility of nuclear confrontation with North Korea which is unfortunately something that's been in the news and as we're about to host a debate tournament at our school this weekend I'm thinking that uh, nuke nuke war scenarios which oftentimes in cross examination debates seem ridiculous you know uh, I think it's probably there's going to be all kinds of good good cards running around there that people are going to use um, two parts to this. So if you go to um, the link for uh, Missile Map, which is at nuclearsecrecy.com slash Missile Map, <clears throat> you can choose a launch preset. And he's recently added North Korea. Of course, this is declassified stuff, and this is his guess. But it shows you um, what the believed launch capability of North Korea is at this point to be able to reach out and touch someone, you know, across the Pacific Ocean, uh, which really, I think, might just be missing Oklahoma, uh, but it's awfully doggone close. It doesn't hit the East Coast yet. And so you can uh, select a location there on the map, and um, you'll get the, the little arc because this is an ICBM, right, that's going to um, uh, most likely, if it's going across the ocean, it's going to be exiting the atmosphere and coming back in. And then there's a button that says export to nuke map and nuke map works uh, independently, but it also can work in conjunction and <clears throat> you can select the uh, anticipated yield and of, of the, of the bomb. And this is really interesting from an historical standpoint, uh, as far as what the, you know, different, uh, megaton sizes have been of, uh, of nuclear tests of actual bombs used by the United States, used by the Soviet Union, um, used by China. And then you can change some, some things. Uh, and it is connected to demographics as far as casualties and radioactive fallout. And so this may seem macabre, but actually I think if we're talking about current events, um, you know, the World War II generation has almost completely passed away now in our country. And so the, we don't have that many current memories of, you know, what World War II and the devastation that was wrought, not only by nuclear weapons, but by conventional weapons as well, uh, was like. And so certainly looking at a map that talks about, you know, numbers of folks, you know, being killed and things like that is not, you understand it, but these were very compelling geo map resources. And um, I think, something that is certainly worth checking out and considering sharing with not only, you know, teachers of geography, but also, you know, teachers who are talking about current events with students. Have you, had you seen these tools before Jason? I read, um, I, I read the, the articles you shared tonight and then uh, it reminded me of, of a couple of tools from, you know, 15 years ago that did something similar, but in a much more, uh, a less high tech way. But uh, yeah, super interesting, and and I love that, right? Like that that that's great to take technology, match it together, and provide a, a, a almost a, a mental playground for students to you know wonder and what up and explore and ask questions and, and test simulations. So uh, really, really amazing. Jason, would you be willing to take us to any of your big data and AI articles? I think these may be ones that we've kind of pulled forward from uh, last week, but I don't think we've talked about any of the of the DeepMind or the Amazon ones. 
Yeah, uh, one of these is, is is a lot older, so let's mix it with with another one. Uh, they both are related to Amazon, and um, Amazon it, it made kind of a faux pas uh, a few weeks ago, and it so happens I was included on this faux pas. Um, Amazon emailed me to let me know that I had a baby on the way, and that I should start preparing, basically start preparing now to purchase um, items related to. Uh, you know, babies. And what's funny about that is that uh, we are hosting an exchange student this year, and we have been joking that we, you know, we have a kid now, right? We um, were uh, infamously dinks, um, double income, no kid, uh, a, a couple, and um, there, there was this thing that came in Amazon, and I was like, wow, that's super interesting that it figured out that we had a kid at home. Um, and then I found out that many people had received that email, and it was definitely an error on Amazon's part. Um, and that's that's more of a, you know, like bad AI, bad advertising. But the other article I'm sharing, which is a little more interesting, is that um, Amazon has been recommending basically based on X, Y, and Z ingredients, other bomb-making ingredients. In other words, um, the, uh, the retailer has been offering um, uh, group-together items that could make a lethal bomb. And so this is a BBC article from September 19th where they talk about um, you know, if you if you add uh, one or two things to a cart that happen to relate to something that is a bomb-making material, that it will start recommending to you the other ingredients to a bomb because these things are oftentimes bought together. So this brings up a question that I'd love to uh, shout out to our to our chat room and anybody else to tune in into. Um, which, by the way, uh, Peggy just dropped a great link to an Eric Kurtz webinar called Google Tool. Google Tour Builder for any subject, so more, more more geo app goodness. But back to your statement as far as Amazon and getting these recommendations. <clears throat> How do we help students understand and be aware of the line at which taking a quiz on on your smartphone, sharing, you know, I like this, I like that, um, you know, just just sharing your life via social media. Um, helpful advertising and oh i really don't care to it's creepy to gosh our democracy has been subverted by this system what do we do about it um i'll tell a story about one of my daughters who this this past weekend um i just noticed her on her phone you know clicking through a quiz and i said you you know they're they're uh putting that data together uh, about you. And she's like, dad, it's just a quiz on Buzzfeed. I said, I know, hon, but all of those things are connected, you know, and they're building a profile about you um, so that, you know, so that they can market to you. And then it's, and it's kind of like a meh, you know, who, who cares? But I don't, there is a continuum here. And there are stories, which we, I think we've talked about before where, you know, the marketing becomes very intrusive. Like you're starting to see bomb, you know, ingredient ads or, you know, perhaps I've heard I've read about this where somebody is looking for like an Alcoholics Anonymous uh, group or a counseling group. And then suddenly they're being marketed to, you know, for alcohol ads and seeing things they, they absolutely don't want to see. Um, but, you know, marketers are able to target all kinds of things. And so I don't know that that's a puzzle. Do you, do you have a good answer for us, Jason, that will help me sleep tonight and know how how we can help students walk that line and you know, be aware of it and, and care, which, by the way, I'm wearing my I love to share shirt today. So I'm still loving to share, but still wrestling with these issues. Well, and I, I think part of it is that we, we, we need to acknowledge that that commerce on the Internet means it's going to be constantly trying to sell you additional products. Right. And one of the things that I, I think is underappreciated um, by students that have such convenient ways to engage in commerce in 2017 is that everything is really tweaked for you to 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 engage in an economic way, right? To show purchase intent um, in the way you engage with things, and that's that's an under underappreciated part of, of of what the internet has brought us, right? Like the reason why Amazon is recommending additional bomb making materials is because they want you to buy something. They don't want you to build a bomb. They want you to buy the stuff to build a bomb, right? That's a very different concept, right? They're not looking to for people to, to blow things up. They're looking for people to buy. Um, I'm reminded of something that um, is is very interesting to me that's, that's somewhat part of this. Uh, maybe this is a bit of an overshare, but um, as we've talked about in the past, um, I am a kidney transplant recipient, and I am uh, I, I, I pretty aggressively medicated as part of my, my post-transplant uh, regime, where 
um, I am required to take immunosuppressant drugs. And so when I travel, I have to travel with, you know, a variety of pharmaceuticals. This is my travel a pharmaceutical pack so that I can uh, take, take those medications. But part of that is that I, I had to find little tiny plastic baggies um, to be able to put my pills into. So this is a morning package of pills for me that's in, you know, it's part of my medical case. Well, if you go onto Amazon and buy one by one plastic baggies, they do not think you're a kidney transplant recipient. In fact, there are other uses that are also related to the word drugs that are useful when you're buying one by one inch baggies. And so for example, if you go to Amazon right now and look for these particular items, they're gonna to try to sell you things like a scale, right? Also not useful to the kidney transplant recipient taking, you know, tacrolimus. So that's, that's something that, that, that's an interesting piece of that. It's not like Amazon is encouraging me to become Walter White and build my own meth empire. What Amazon's encouraged me to do is just buy more crap, right? And so I think that there is a, a savviness there that we do need to be made aware of. Um, I, it's, I find it interesting that I do feel like that there was a lot of energy 15 years ago around uh, media savvy and um, uh, uh, students taking on and understanding um, advertising and, and other tricks of the trade. And I don't hear about that as much anymore. Like, I feel like that topic is, and it's definitely not played because I think it's even more complex and nuanced. And so part of this is, you know, I, I want to encourage those teachers that were at the forefront of bringing um, that kind of media savvy education to the classroom. If you haven't done that lately or if that's fallen out of favor in your school or district, you know, uh, uh, agitate and bring that information back because in 2017, it's as or more important than it was when this topic first became a hot topic 20 years ago in American schools. Awesome points. And so shout out to one of my favorite media literacy scholars and resource sources is Renee Hobbs, Dr. Renee Hobbs. Um, she's now up in Rhode Island, but her website is mediaeducationlab.com. And there is, there, she just has a, a wealth of resources related to media literacy, um, advertising literacy, um, uh, you know, helping with uh, different different elements of uh, of digital citizenship, copyright and fair use, things like that. But but definitely, you know, teaching media literacy and making that a thing that we do. Uh, so I'll add that to the show notes. And then the other thing is this segues well to one of the articles I had, had originally put down under uh, under under the Facebook title. Um, this is The Atlantic from this week on October 12th, 2017. What Facebook did to American democracy. And I really think that what's what's been emerging over the last few months you know, is a growing awareness if we're paying attention and, and reading the articles about how the Russians subverted our democracy, you know, with hacks and through Facebook largely. Um, in Ohio, I think the article, I think this one talks about it, it was like 33,000 votes or something like that. And so this article, it's, it reminds me of, um, you know, when we when we have a, a bad incident with like the, the Boston Marathon bombing or, or something else, usually the intelligence community, you know, will eventually pull out, oh, you know, this was a warning flag and this was a warning flag. And, and many sometimes or maybe many times the issue is there's such a volume of information that each of those things can't be, you know, the, the dots can't be connected to say, oh, OK, that that's what's happening here. And that's where machine learning and all these, you know, algorithms and processing power is being applied to try to do that. And the surveillance state is rising up, you know, in part to do that. What this article does is it talks about different studies and articles that were showing what happened during the Obama victory uh, in 2012 when, when he won and the role that social media played there. And then, um, you know, what, what happened uh, in the last election. In the last show, I mentioned the 60 Minutes episode, I think, where they, they uh, interviewed the, um, the, the man who was the Donald Trump, you know, head person, uh, you know, running, running the Facebook campaigns. And so, 
probably sort of an after the fact talking about why it was so hard to see this coming. But the point that connects to your statements about Amazon is it saying, you know, we're talking about the fundamental economics of companies like Google and like Facebook, which is to advertise to you, which is all about selling to you and then engagement. And there's a really good discussion in this article about the news feed, right? It's this mysterious algorithm that has the goal of getting us to spend more time on right. social media and specifically on Facebook. And it talks about ranking. There have been a few articles with some of the coders, because this is a secret algorithm, but giving some insight, you know, writing a comment on a particular post, you know, makes that person as a source and that topic rate higher for you in the future as far as your newsfeed. Um, if you are, you know, liking any kind of interaction that you're doing is going to increase that. And, you know, people are literally working, you know, their entire working day trying to figure out how to increase, quote, the engagement. And so anyway, this is a great article. And I think it's highly unlikely we're going to see a regulatory relief that is going to address this. And I think that. It's, I may be wrong. The tinfoil hat is sitting here. I'm not wearing it tonight, but it just, it seems like we're, we're, we're becoming more aware as a society and, and maybe, maybe we're not as much as I hope that we are to what, what happened with our, our last presidential election and what happened with Brexit. And really the, the responsibility that Facebook has as one of the most powerful information, you know, aggregation and distribution sources and i just it it's this is big for democracy so yep. do you think people are broadly aware of that jason am, or am i off base with that um i i think there is a there there is a a a certainly a growing awareness but i'm not sure if the people that really need to understand that it's it's part of their point of view yet and part of it's because um, you know, if you are if you're being impacted by Facebook in that way and you're not really looking for the outside criticism to find out more about why, then you may or may not be engaging in in the critical discourse that I think is required here. Um, you know, I, I it reminds me of um, there's a lot of people that talk about press freedom in Russia. And as an example of this, um, you know, there there is an extraordinary um, uh, 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 accusation that the government controls the press there because the government controls television news. Um, uh, the vast majority of television news programs are, are, are either government supported or government created. And the argument against that is that, well, there are, you know, there's 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 uh, many, many resources available to the typical Russian citizen, including Internet based news resources and print resources, except that no one reads the newspaper and no one uses the uh, uh, online for news, the primary uh, uh, source for news in Russia is television news. And so the vast majority of people, you know, they can find criticism if they're looking for it. But if they're using the traditional news sources there, which is dominated by television, they're getting a fairly one sided point of view. And so, yeah, I, you know, I media criticism is not something people usually are spending a lot of time on. Um, a shout out to one of my favorites, a podcast, the NPR show on the media which is a weekly um, uh, NPR show that that uh, uh, it provides a lot of media criticism. It's really, really well done, but it's also super wonky, right? Like, I'm, I'm a political science geek. That's that's my formal academic training is in political science. I think the media is super interesting. I think social media is super interesting. So, you know, a lot of people are, aren't going to get excited about, um, you know, the, the meta uh, of, 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 of media. So I, I think that's something that, that we probably need to think some more about. But it goes back to what we always tend to go back to here. That's why education about news, education about media, education about source um, evaluation is, is pretty darn important. And now that we say that out loud, um, one organization that's been doing a great job in the last two weeks, and you may have seen this in Facebook feeds if you're a Facebook user, is the Museum, which is a, a Washington, D.C.-based uh, journalism museum, has been spending a lot of time um, working on graphics that walk people through how to evaluate sources uh, to find out you know, what is mainstream and what is not. In fact, uh, if you go to museumed.org, and I'll throw this into the show notes, uh, they've released uh, a series of uh, pretty amazing um, uh, 
uh, infographics uh, aimed at helping people understand um, um, what they're looking at and, and also uh, to kind of a, a share-worthy criteria. The most recent release is a, a, a kind of like a little uh, a infographic on you know whether or not something is should be shared and is as they're calling it share worthy and so uh you know there is there is people fighting back but i think that education is where a lot of that activity needs to happen absolutely we're the front lines right and what would have one time been oh we go to the computer lab to do that oh that's you know i don't i teach math i teach social studies you know i'm not teaching that i mean this is literacy in the 21st century i'm reminded of david warlick Back in the day, right? Ooh, David Warlick, um, you know, talking about how literacy is being redefined. And in order to be literate in the 21st century, which we're almost, you know, two decades into now, um, we need a different skill set and we need to, you know, be, uh, talking about these things, not, not just in a, a few isolated classes, but across the curriculum. So yeah, I pulled up, um, their whole media literacy resource page on the, on the museum. And, uh, yeah, looking for free resources on fighting fake news and developing your students' media literacy skills. Here are highlights from our activities, lessons, case studies, and guest blog posts. And that, that looks fantastic. Um, all right, so we've got about 10 minutes till the top of the hour. Um, we might kind of go into uh, a bit of a... Uh, of a speed round here. Uh, we can just kind of bounce back with, with a couple more articles and then, then we'll, we'll geek of the week. Does that sound all right? Sure, sounds great. I'm going to do cryptocurrency. So we've been uh, talking a little bit on the show from time to time about cryptocurrencies. Uh, if you go back in our show notes, there's a really great uh, video explanation that talks about, you know, how does a cryptocurrency work? Um, what is the blockchain, right? The blockchain is the fundamental technology for Bitcoin that makes it an accountable, but also in the case of Bitcoin and many other cryptocurrencies, a decentralized currency, which is not controlled by a particular government or a particular bank. So what did Russia announce this week? They are having the crypto ruble. And so both China and uh, Russia have been showing their cards that it looked like they were going to be moving into cryptocurrency. There's a lot of benefit to a cryptocurrency in that you don't have to print it. You don't have to go through that cost. You don't have to worry about taking things out of circulation. Um, and the, the anonymity, which criminal elements and others, you know, love about cash could potentially be taken out by the blockchain. And so one of the things uh, that these articles talk about, um, there is a, a Bloomberg article from October 17th, authoritarian cryptocurrencies are coming, talking both about China and Russia. And then Russia Today, which of course is a mouthpiece news agency of Russia, from October 17th, Putin greenlights the launch of the crypto ruble. Um, they want to tax this. And so what the article says is that if someone can't prove where they got their crypto ruble, then they'll just be immediately slapped with a 13% tax, I think is what, what they said. And um, there is far less freedom in commercial banking in Russia and China. And so those governments actually have a greater capacity than, than our government would say here in the United States. Uh, to push their own currency. And so this is a real twist. And I hadn't seen this before with cryptocurrencies where uh, a central uh, government is, is saying, oh, great, blockchain, let's make that centralized and use that as a tool to, you know, try to make sure we're getting our piece of the pie with taxes as well as potentially, you know, chasing down criminals. That was very long for a speed uh, round. I'll try to go faster <laughs> next, next time. <laughs> okay, well, let's see if I can turn this around quickly. Uh, the Verge a report in October 16, 2017, that Netflix uh, has announced plans to invest $8 billion in original content. Much of it's focused on releasing 30 new anime series, which wouldn't be something I'd be particularly interested in, but apparently there's a number of other live-action series on slated uh, for development and release, as well as 80 movies that Netflix will be investing in. And, I mean, it just goes to show you, television is definitely evolving quickly. The Internet is challenging the hegemony of the three broadcast networks. I'm looking forward to any new series that... Um, uh, Netflix green lights that could produce uh, the next, you know, very, very interesting series. So good on Netflix for continuing to expand their original library. Under the title This Week in Hacking, this is my favorite headline of the week from NBC News on October 5th. Former Equifax CEO blames one IT guy for the <laughs> massive hack, and it doesn't name his name in the article. Wouldn't you love to be that guy? 
um, in the defense of that guy. Uh, I don't think just he, they say that he didn't patch systems and that led to their, you know, whole demise. We've talked about this on the show as well. They also set up an algorithm which took the date and time of when you asked to freeze your account and then created your supposedly random key, you know, based upon that information. There was some really big fundamental security flaws that I think I probably could have helped with if I was working on their security team at the time. Um, but in addition to that, there's a really uh, good article uh, by Matthew D. Green called Falling Through the Cracks and Crack spelling K-R-A-C-K. Uh, and this is talking about massive Wi-Fi attacks and vulnerabilities for RSA. And we won't get into this in extreme detail, but most of the articles that I'm seeing say RSA is being used as a cryptographic algorithm uh, in, in the case of um, WPA2 encryption, right? Web, web encryption has, is, has been cracked and everyone says don't use that on your routers. WPA2 has been um, what people say, you know, utilize. Uh, part of what was interesting in, in these articles um, is that there's a call for machine learning to be used in trying to validate these kind of things. And this is just, this is high level math. I had one of our math, or actually one of our math teachers just voluntarily explained to me or tried to, you know, how the RSA um, algorithm works and, and how all that math works. And so anyway, we need kids to be taking math, learning about cryptography and being able to intelligently contribute on, you know, a policy level about these kinds of issues and uh, hopefully developing systems that are going to continue to protect us because, again, this week in hacking, there's always something new. Absolutely true. Uh, Recode reports in September 14th, uh, 2017, interesting expose that pulls the veil back on the amount of money spent um, on Instagram to have influencers hack their wares. And the article reports that advertisers spent a, an estimated $570 million in 2016 on different tiers of celebrities uh, to, to you know, utilize, advertise, or just even wear products uh, uh, for you. And to give you a sense of this, uh, they try to, uh, uh, to to break down what a single post might cost an advertiser. They break it down into five different tiers of influencers, anywhere from the super duper influencers, the the seven or eight million follower influencers, all, all down to the super micro influencer, which have just fifty thousand followers. Which means I have no idea what I would be called the minuscule, super non followed influencer. I guess. Um, but the amount of money spent on, on a, 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 an average post for a tier one, two, and three influencers, 21,000, 32,000, or 25,000 respectively, which means that when your favorite celebrity that you follow on Instagram is wearing new earrings, um, uh, uh, utilizing a new cell phone, talking about the great selfies they're taking with their Samsung phone, that could indeed be advertising um, that's being aimed at you via celebrity culture. So buyers and social media uh, uh, watchers beware. And I'll do one more. Uh, this is actually a fairly old, six years old uh, book and TED Talk. Um, but along the lines of media literacy and filter bubbles and news feeds and all that, a book I have not read but is uh, seems to be a seminal work here is uh, Eli, uh, I guess, Pariser, I'm not saying my, if I'm saying his name right, uh, Pariser, the filter bubble, how the new personalized web is changing what we read and how we think. Uh, and I think I just bought that uh, last night uh, used off Amazon for like five bucks with shipping. Um, his TED talk, Beware Online Filter Bubbles, is also from 2011. So I think that's a good media literacy kind of cultural literacy thing like we should we should probably all be we've heard probably of that term filter bubble, but this is one of the origins of it. And if you want to go to the source, watch the TED talk or and or read the book. There it is. And let's see if I can come up with maybe a last one here. And I've lost my page. I'm trying to fill it with words now. And oh, this one's super interesting. Wired on September 26 reports that Verizon, which purchased Yahoo earlier this year, has decided to open source Yahoo's search engine code in a logarithm. And uh, what's interesting about that to me is that uh, I hope someone might take that source code and maybe put together an open source search engine um, that uh, would give you a little more sense of you know, some of the magic behind why certain things bubble up to the top of search. 
of course, that is dangerous because if you tell people, you know, how search uh, finds the top uh, posts, that means that advertisers and other people that are looking to influence your opinion will then tweak things. But it is very interesting that such a major influential player in the search field that's not Google is now allowing people to peek behind and find out more about how Yahoo search results were created. Well, it is the top of the hour, and that means we probably should start the Geeks of the Week if we have not already. So I'll go first and let you kind of close this out. Mine uh, links to the Google News that I shared earlier about security, and I actually have one of these on my desk now to give it a try, not in the advanced security mode, but just as another option for security. And it is a FIDO UTF security key. So you can find some of these for like 50 bucks, but this one is $10 and has uh, three and a half stars with 99 reviews. It sounds like sometimes it's a little difficult to get into some USB slots, but uh, this is the physical device that you can use to authenticate yourself. And I... I'm going to give this a try, and and like I said, we we actually do have a a teacher without a cell phone who will, you know, probably provide one of these uh, to him. Uh, I, we're not going to be getting these for everybody, but if somebody doesn't have a cell phone, then this may be something we're going to do. Since as a school, we're going to require everybody to to get onto two step. Excellent. Well, um, the Geek of the Week thing I want to share this week is a weather application. Um, it used to be called Forecast.io, and it, it renamed itself about a year ago to Dark Skies. But Dark Skies, I believe it's .net, is a great weather web-based weather app, but there's also a mobile application. And what I like about this, and this is, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to show this, this is the Android version of the, the application. It's very clean. It has a nice modern design to it. But what I like about the Dark Skies app is that, um, especially if you uh, if you pay for the uh, the advanced version, and it's it's an app that actually costs you a yearly cost as opposed to a one time cost. And I like the app so much that I do pay two dollars and ninety nine cents a year to continue to use the pro version on my Android phone. Um, it will actually send you notifications or let you know uh, how soon that moisture will appear in your specific area. And I found it to be creepily accurate to where I've been, there have been times when I, I like to go out and enjoy the beautiful University of Montana campus at lunchtime to take a walk each day, and there have been times when I've received a notification that's about to rain, and three minutes, it's going to rain in three minutes, and about three minutes later, a big old droplet falls on my head, and so a wonderful application that I would definitely suggest you consider, and again, the beautiful web-based um, application as well, that's darkskies.net. Excellent. And I apparently did not explain mine quite well enough. Peggy has asked in the chat room what it does. Uh, this is for two-factor authentication back to the FIDO security key. And so instead of using the Google Authenticator app or using uh, text messaging, which can be spoofed and there are ways around that, you have to have this physical key in order to do your two-factor. To take that leap into the advanced Google protection, you would need one of those and you'd also need a Bluetooth device. So, Jason, where can folks find you, and what have you been writing and will you be uh, writing and doing in, in the coming weeks uh, tech-wise? Well, um, I'm currently working on um, some uh, detailed uh, documentation that I plan to release publicly for my day job, which is how to set up the Google uh, browser for best efficiency as an online student or teacher. And um, I, I'm working on that in context of my day job, but I also hope to publish it on my blog, which is uh, the NCC Tech Saver Teacher blog, blog.ncc.org, and also the Virtual Learning Leadership Alliance blog, um, where, virtu where virtual schools uh, directors have been blogging over the last couple of years to talk about uh, distance learning. But I think that's an important topic, and oftentimes we find that our students struggle a little bit with online classes don't know that they need to do the same thing they need to do in their face-to-face -face class, which is to make mindful decisions to set yourself up. You want to buy the right notebook. You want to buy the right pen. You want to have the right equipment available. And then setting up your notebook, or in this case, your web browser for maximum efficiency is really the best way to be a tech-savvy online student. So look for that soon, and I'll certainly announce it uh, when that information is available here um, on the EdTech Situation Room. I'm also on Twitter. Tech Savvy Teach, where I post usually 10, 15 links a week of interesting things I'm reading about. Sometimes they lean a little nerdy. Um, I do have some analytics things plugged into Twitter and found out last night, for example, that no one clicked, a, clicked on my article on where last night you could uh, tune in to live robot fights. So I'm sad to find out that I was the only one interested in that phenomenon. 
Sometimes it's better to just not know. But uh, I am W. Fryer on Twitter and my blog, speedofcreativity.org, uh, where I am usually now posting about once a week. But I think I actually posted twice in the in the last week. And um, I would encourage you to check out the G-Camp OKC, which we have coming up on November the 4th. Um, we're going to be... Looks like we got about 100 registered. I hope we maybe we're going to get to about 150, but it's going to be our, our first one. And uh, uh, if anything, we're hoping to have the best lunch ever because we have the Oklahoma Port Council's smoker at our school when it's not being used at the state fair. And um, the, uh, the chef at our school is able to cook amazing smoked chicken and ribs. So, yes, if you want to come for nothing else but the meal, $25 will get you a wonderful lunch and a great day of Google learning on Saturday, November 4th in Oklahoma City at the Cassidy School. So we are the EdTech Situation Room. You can find us at edtechsr.com. All of our links are available at edtechsr.com slash links. We invite you to subscribe to our YouTube channel where we have all of our shows that allow you to not only see tinfoil hats, but also Dave puppets and other surprising things that may just jump into your screen. But if you're listening to us on audio, that is great because we have 32 kilobit audio versions as well as 360p video versions archived there, downloadable from Amazon S3. Um, we want to give a great shout out to our chat room tonight. Thank you to Jamie Camp and Peggy George for joining us. If you'd like to join us, Normally, you can do that on Wednesday nights here on YouTube Live at 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain, and whatever other time zone you might be in. So until next time, we wish you good luck, be safe, and stay savvy.